1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brinkinridge weekdays, twelve thirty to three, seven seventy, CHQR.
2: So it's pretty clear. It seems uh, that we should be expecting some kind of response from China, some kind of a retaliation uh, from the Chinese government, uh, and their reaction initially has has been one of anger. As mentioned, that statement from the Chinese embassy in Ottawa, demanding that we immediately release Ms. Meng Wanzhou, allow her return safely to China, and do not go further down the wrong path. The Communist Party-run Global Times, a uh, state-run newspaper, uh, says this decision uh, yesterday concerning Meng Wanzhou will, quote, make Canada a pathetic clown and a scapegoat in the fight between China and the U.S. I suppose in some respects, we are caught here between China and the U.S. Meng Wanzhou is accused of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. And it's the U.S. that wants to deal with Meng Wanzhou. But obviously, we're following our own laws here. And it was this judge yesterday that made the decision regarding the argument from Meng Wanzhou and her legal team on the criminality aspect of this. Uh, so this will play out in court. She will have her day in court, uh, but obviously the Chinese are expecting us to to essentially do what what they want us to do here, and th- that's not how this all works. So how are they to react, and how do we react to their reaction? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about some of these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, here this afternoon, Stephanie Carvin who's an assistant professor of international affairs, the focus on national security, international law, foreign policy, among other things, at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Hey, always great to be on the show.
2: All right. So what do you make so far of, of the reaction from, uh, from Beijing and has any of it surprised you?
3: no actually you know as soon as this decision came down we saw articles from the normal kind of chinese channels in particular global times which is is not an official paper of the chinese government but is believed to basically just simply carry chinese government lines and it's basically implied that canada is just being a a tool of the united states that we're letting ourselves be used and that meng wenzhou you know should be released and she's innocent and blah 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 (laughs) all the kind of usual blather we we hear from them um and it was the the usual kind of strong um i'll use the word belligerent trumpeting of uh the chinese line which is that again canada should not allow itself to just do you know the u.s is what they see as the u.s is bidding um we so there hasn't been any um retaliatory actions yet I think China is pretty busy right now in the sense that it's having its uh, kind of political congress. It was delayed due to the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, Um, and and so but they're having their political gathering now, and as well uh, they're also dealing with the situation in Hong Kong, which if you know, I don't know if listeners are familiar, but. They're trying to get national security laws passed in Hong Kong that will uh, basically strengthen Beijing's control over what had previous, previously been a relatively autonomous um, uh, Chinese uh, political entity. So that's, that's a bad thing as well. So um, I expect that in the next coming days, we're going to see a range of actions. I would strongly suspect the first thing we'll see, because China has clearly uh, taken the two Canadians, uh, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrick, Michael Favor, as hostages in the situation. And I expect that they will uh, do a tit for tat uh, escalation and then perhaps even more so. So their court cases will likely advance in the next couple of days, if not weeks. In which case, the next stages of their uh, politi- uh, you know their their trial ordeal will will come forward. As well, you know, there's the usual things that China does, which is um, they'll probably slap more tariffs or ban uh, canola or Canadian beef and pork, which uh, is a, again a very normal thing for them to do. And then finally, I guess the thing I'm most concerned about is would they actually prevent Canada from getting PPE? Would they actually stop Canada from getting the face masks and things, which we have, you know, I've seen estimates that possibly up to 80 percent of our PPE comes from China, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and that's not going to be easily replaced. So and and if that happens, uh, people will die is is the most basic answer, because they won't have the the protective equipment that they need. That is the thing I'm worried about the most. We don't know how far China is going to go, but it could be uh, pretty serious.
2: So, but does yesterday market change? Because obviously, China's position all along has been that we need to release Meng Wanzhou, that we're doing the the Americans' bidding. That they've been saying that all along. But but it seems as though maybe this is a bit of a turning point, at least from their perspective. Is that fair to say?
3: Well, there's a number of other steps in the process that um, are going to affect this. So yeah. it's not. Um, so basically, what the court decided yesterday is: is there reasonable grounds to believe that? Had Meng Wanzhou done the thing that she is accused of being of doing in the United States, would that have been a crime in Canada? And her legal argument was no, because uh, Canada doesn't have the same sanctions on Iran that the United States did. Um, but that is not the charge the United States has has laid against Meng Wanzhou. They've said that she has committed bank fraud. Now, it's true Canada doesn't necessarily have the same sanctions. Uh, But we do have bank fraud laws. And if you lie to a bank in Canada, you can be arrested for it. So that's all that was a test for. So then it will go on to a next stage um, where kind of a probability, I I think, uh, a lot of the evidence, more evidence will be looked at. Um, But there's another line of attack that her defense lawyers are taking, which is an abuse of process. So this is a whole separate procedure where she's alleging that the warrant stipulated that she was to be immediately arrested Um, at the airport, but she wasn't immediately arrested. She was detained, and they tried to search her phones and communication devices and talk to her. And so they said that was an abusive process. So that's now going to be going to court as well next month. So there's a number of legal processes that are still in the way of this. I've seen estimates that, you know, this entire ordeal, if it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, could take up to 10 years. So, you know, settle in. This is is not going to be resolved anytime soon.
2: Well, that's an important point. I mean, I, I maybe it would have been good yesterday if it was, you know, final decision. Either she's being extradited or she's being released and we could just kind of wash our hands of it. That's not the case. So we're, we're going to have to stick with this for some time as it, as it all plays out. And in the meantime, obviously, China is certainly, uh, it seems inclined to ratchet up the pressure on us. Yeah,
3: exactly. And unfortunately, I mean, uh, ideally in this situation, you would have the United States putting pressure on China, to, you know, because, you know, we are acting at the request of an ally. We we can't deny this. There is a treaty Mm -hmm. between Canada and the United States that's an extradition treaty. The United States has asked us to enforce this treaty in this particular case. But you would hope that the United States would have been a little bit more helpful with regards to uh supporting us with regards to uh advocating for the release of the two michaels uh donald trump has largely been preoccupied first with trying to get his own trade deal with china and then secondly uh now just shifting to just blaming them for the uh 19 pandemic the he, he doesn't care he he honestly doesn't care about the two canadians so um we may see a shift in november um, with if, if there is a, as Joe Biden does become president there there could be a shift there could be uh, a better commitment to trying to help Canada out in this situation but um, you're right uh, there's a, also a very good chance this could go on for many more years and the thing I worry about is uh, the condition of the two Michaels they are um, yeah. not being held in good conditions they are, they're conditions that would almost certainly count as torture in any Canadian prison and uh, that's very, very difficult for
2: them and their families. There definitely is. Um, Now, in the meantime, you know, there there are other issues you alluded to, the situation in in Hong Kong. Uh, The Canada is standing with the United States and European countries and Australia. There there, there is that united front when it comes to some of these other issues pertaining to China. Um, So why does it seem that we're we're kind of on our own in in this whole situation?
3: I... I, really good question i would strongly believe in that um this is the kind of issue where you really do need leader to leader kind of pressure you need donald Mm -hmm. trump calling up jinju Jinping and not talking about you know soybean farmers in wisconsin you need him talking about um you know the fate of these two canadians and putting that kind of leader to leader pressure on on Jinping, which he is just not proven willing to do um I strongly suspect the statement on Hong Kong was uh, probably not written by Donald Trump. He may have approved it, but it was probably written by the state departments and coordination among the different state departments of uh, the four countries who have spoken out about it. So, um, you know, that's, that's just kind of the way diplomacy works, is that normally these things are kind of handled at different levels, but when you get these more sensitive political issues they get escalated to to higher levels and canada has traditionally been fortunate in that we've had a u.s president who's often willing to advocate for us but in this case is clearly not
2: yeah well and absent that i mean there there is going to be that i don't know if temptation is the word certainly there's been pressure from from some voices in canada suggesting that that you know, maybe we shouldn't be helping the United States out here. Maybe we should release Meng Wanzhou. Maybe we should try to uh, make nice with with the Chinese government. Do you suspect that we're going to hear more of that? And what what are the risks of of that kind of an approach here?
3: So I think that it is really, I, I get frustrated sometimes when I see this, because on the one hand, you have people who aren't happy unless Justin Trudeau comes out at his daily press conference with a bullhorn screaming about, China, and then on the other hand, you want people to acqu- acquiesce, right? Um, so you have people who, who just kind of want acquiescence, and you have people who, who want just loud noises. And I think there's a kind of a smart middle strategy that that could be done here um, to, to be a little bit more uh, smart in, in, in how we're going about this. I think that the best thing that – you know, Canada by itself, we're a country of 37, 38 million people. We can't really leverage China in the way that we would like to. But, you know, we are better off when we can work with our allies if we can. So, you know, do we have our allies? standing behind us? Can we leverage them to make statements about uh, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor? Um, can, can you, uh, you know, we were very successful at doing that in December 2018 when they were originally taken hostage. Uh, we were able to get, I think, up to, you know, something like 15 countries made very pointed statements about about the situation. And we need to keep that up, but I'm not sure that's happening. So, uh, you know, that's that's the kind of coordinated action I would like to see. So, okay, Donald Trump doesn't care about us, but can we get the EU to care? Can we get uh, Australia to care and these kinds of things? And I think that's effectively going to be our best option for now in lieu of this court case probably going to be dragging on for a number uh, of years. Um, I don't think I think we should be more courageous when it comes to our values so i I was happy today to see canada stand up for hong kong Uh, i'm desperately worried about that situation it it looks very grim and uh you know but at the same time we do have to appreciate that we have a number of frontline workers who are dependent on ppe from china and it's probably going to be that way at least for the short to medium term And that does possibly hamper what we can actually do in this situation. Um, It's it's a shame that we were put in this situation in the first place. It makes me desperately sad, but um, here we are. And this is something that the government, unfortunately, has to balance at this time.
2: Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there and see where it goes from here. Stephanie, appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today.
3: Well, one day I want to talk about good news, Rob. Yeah, hopefully. It's not that day. Uh, that'll
2: be fun. It's not that day, yeah, but no too, kidding. One day. All the best, okay. Stephanie. Take care. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Take care. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Obviously, when it comes to COVID 19, there's a real urgency uh, in finding treatments for the disease and obviously, and ultimately, uh, a vaccine. Uh, but before we get there, You know, there's certainly been, I think, the question, well, do we have anything that we can use off the shelf? Do we have existing drugs uh, that might be of some benefit when it comes to COVID-19, whether it be shortening the uh, illness or helping uh, maybe avoid more serious outcomes or dealing with some specific symptoms? So there's been a lot of of, um, research along these lines in, in what do we have right now? What could be of some benefit? One in particular, though. For a variety of reasons, has received a lot of attention. Hydroxychloroquine. Now, there was a, a, a French study published a couple of months ago uh, that made some pretty remarkable claims about the efficacy of this. That certainly generated a lot of interest. Uh, but I think once the U.S. president latched on uh, to to it, it became something different, right? It, it took on some political connotation or significance. But look, at the same time, it was something worth investigating. Do we have something here? What's the the impact of this? Could it be of some benefit? So there have been a number of studies that have been done looking at hydroxychloroquine. But as this has progressed, uh, the evidence has become, uh, I I think, more discouraging in terms of its potential benefit. And I think it's safe to say we're at the point now where um, it's becoming clear that this probably doesn't offer much benefit and that there is also as we've been learning some risk associated with this enough so that here in Alberta uh, a study that was underway a trial that was underway has been temporarily suspended and we've seen that reaction in a number of other countries as well so joining us to talk a bit more about you know this the saga of hydroxychloroquine uh, what the evidence is telling us and and why it's become uh, such a big issue uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon uh, Derek Lowe, who is a medical uh, chemist. He's also a drug discovery researcher, writes the uh, In the Pipeline blog at sciencemag.org, uh, looking at drug discovery and the pharma industry. Derek, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome. Oh,
1: thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here.
2: Um, there, there are other drugs that are being looked at, there are other treatments in development. But why has hydroxychloroquine, in your view, become so polarizing and and such a a focus in all of this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You gave a pretty fair summary of of the situation. It really did kick off with a report from France. Now hydroxychloroquine had been looked at during the earlier SARS epidemic back in around 2003 or so, and there had been reports that it could have some antiviral activity, especially in you know, test tube type in vitro assays. So it was a natural thing to try, but the, the French group at Marseille had reported 14 patients that showed a really dramatic effect in lowering the amount of virus in their system. Problem is that was only 14 people. And they didn't have a control group. So all a study like that can tell you is, you know, there might be something here. Go do a better study. Mm -hmm. But people got really, really excited about it. It was so early in the spread of the epidemic to other countries that people seized on this as, my gosh, we've got something to treat it. But you can't say that with just that small amount of data.
2: Right. I, I think, you know, we, we get caught up in these things and, and the prospect mm-hmm. of, of something coming along and, and sort of saving us from this pandemic. Uh, you know, it was easy for people to latch on to that idea, I think.
1: Absolutely. And I understand where folks are coming from. They want something to treat this. They want something to cure it. They want this to go away. I mean, I, I share that feeling. Mm-hmm. But the odds of finding an existing drug that can really make this go away are very small. It's very hard to repurpose drugs. We always try because, you know, if something works, you've got a drug ready to go. It's approved for humans. It's on the shelf. But the number of really successful repurposings, you can probably count on one hand.
2: Uh, so since that initial study, as you say, I mean, there was some curiosity and there've been a number of other studies conducted, right. and, and obviously most recently, this this pretty big study uh, in the Lancet. So now, now that we have a lot more evidence to draw upon, what, what is that evidence telling us?
1: Well, it's a familiar story. I mean, I've been doing drug discovery for about 30 years now. There are a lot of times when you see something that looks like it's working in early clinical trials, But then as you do larger, more powerful studies, the effect just kind of disappears. That's the usual. I mean, we have a 90% failure rate for drugs trying to get through the clinic. So that's what happens most of the time. That was what everyone was worried about here. You see something dramatic in 14 patients. As we've done larger, more controlled studies, the effect just seems to be fading out. In fact, the evidence that it does something good for coronavirus patients is getting harder to make a case for, while the evidence that can actually do harm is actually getting a little more solid.
2: Now, this study in The Lancet uh, was a pretty big study. It it was an observational Mm -hmm. study, which I I guess is different than what would be seen as kind of the gold standard, you know, the randomized, double-blind, et cetera. But certainly there's some important information here. So explain the difference, first of all. Sure.
1: Well, you're right. The gold standard is where you start out with an intentional study where you say, we are going to look for this effect. And you enroll patients, carefully randomizing them, but making sure that the groups are balanced in like age and gender and severity of disease, all the other factors you can come up with. And you treat one with the therapy and one with some kind of comparison. It could be If nothing is the standard of care then they get nothing if there is a standard of care then they get that but you pick it so that there is one big difference between the groups and that's one of them gets the extra drug and one group doesn't that's the best way to do it especially if the patients don't know which one they're getting and the doctors themselves don't know which one they're giving them double-blinded as we say Mm -hmm. that takes a while to set up though and it's it's you know a lot of logistics so an observational trial is one where you say, okay, you know, we've been treating a lot of patients here. Let's go back and look through their, through the records of how they did according to how we treated them. So you're looking back, a retrospective trial, and just saying, all right, let's see if there are any differences. And that's what the Lancet study was. They looked at a huge number of patients across a lot of hospitals around the world, and tried to say, okay, are there any things we can tell from the ones who got hydroxychloroquine with and without other drugs versus the ones who didn't get it at all?
2: Right, and so in that sense, uh, as you say, there's, there's not much here to suggest that there's some benefits, but certainly there's some red flags when it comes to, you know, the potential risk of this.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. Hydroxychloroquine was already known to cause a problem called QT prolongation in the lingo. So if you want to sound like you know drug discovery, you can ask about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It basically means that it can bring on an arrhythmia in the heartbeat. A lot of older drugs do that. We now know what causes it. It's a particular protein called an ion channel, and a particular ion channel, and we actually check for that now in drug development. We get rid of drug candidates that are causing that because we don't want the trouble. But there are a lot of older drugs that still do it, and hydroxychloroquine was on the list. Now, people take it already. They used to take it against malaria. They take it now if you have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. Some of those patients take it. It doesn't do too bad a job on them, but these are not people who are sick with the coronavirus. The combination of having a bad know COVID-19 type infection and hydroxychloroquine seems to put a little bit too much strain on the heart and you start seeing these arrhythmias
2: right and and by the way we should note I mean the idea that this could be taken prophylactically uh, as a prophylactic to prevent illness there's certainly been nothing at any point as far as I'm aware uh, to suggest that's the case
1: no there really hasn't there really hasn't the idea was that it was a treatment And. and Treatment versus preventative are two very different things. Sometimes something will carry over and actually be something you can take in advance, and sometimes it will do absolutely nothing unless the disease is underway. So you're right. There is no evidence at all that taking hydroxychloroquine in advance would protect you from the virus. Now, there is a trial underway in the U.K. to look at that and see if it's possible, but it hasn't read out yet, and we don't have any other evidence.
2: So at this point going forward, uh, you know, this this Lancet study isn't necessarily the final word on this question. But given what we know so far, uh, is is it worth going further? I mean, if there's other promising potential avenues of, of repurposing existing drugs, developing new treatments, th- does the focus need to shift? Or wh- where does that leave us as far as hydroxychloroquine is concerned?
1: Yeah, I think we need to get ready for the fact that hydroxychloroquine is not some sort of tremendous answer, it's not some sort of miracle thing that can turn stuff around as, as the U.S. president kept saying. There are a lot of other repurposing studies going on. Um, some of these are only kind of repurposing because you've probably heard about the cytokine storm, the immune response that right. can get people into trouble. There are already drugs that sort of turn down some of that cytokine signaling. Those are being looked at. That could be very useful, and that's not really repurposing. You're using the drugs for what they're supposed to be used for. That could be good, and there are other things. There was just a paper that came out about famotidine, which is an acid reducer. It's often sold under the brand name of Pepsid. That one might actually have some benefits. So there are other things that we should be looking at. There are probably too many trials underway on hydroxychloroquine, The ones that are the biggest and most well-powered statistically, yeah, let's read those out. But there are too many tiny trials on it that are, frankly, I think just a waste of time.
2: It is interesting too because we we talk about treatments for for COVID nineteen, but that that can mean a lot of things. Uh, that could mean uh, treating one potential symptom. That could mean treating the immune system's overreaction, or maybe it means helping to treat right. uh, acute respiratory disease syndrome. Or you know maybe it's about just trying to to shorten the length of of illness. There, there, there's a lot of different ways, I guess, of 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 coming at this, right? And what it is we're Absolutely. trying to do.
1: Absolutely, and those are the ones that you've got the best chance with the existing drugs. Having something that stops a viral infection in its tracks, that's really difficult. I mean, there's really only two viral diseases that we can do that with. We can stop HIV and keep it in place, and we can cure hepatitis C with small molecule drugs, and that's about it. And both of those, you have to take a cocktail of several different kinds so you're hitting the virus from different directions at the same time. Otherwise, it can mutate and get out of trouble. So think about it. I mean, it took years to find all these new drugs and combine them. That's what it would take to have a real curative therapy outside of something like a vaccine or an antibody.
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, a vaccine, I suppose, a good vaccine, an effective vaccine would make uh, any of these treatments kind of moot. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does does that discourage research on on the treatment side, do you think?
1: You know, the research for repurposing is moving full speed ahead because everyone knows that that can be deployed immediately. And it's going to be a while before we have a vaccine. People talk about early next year. That would be great, but that would break all existing speed records Mm -hmm. totally. And that would be if something goes perfectly the first time for one of these vaccine candidates and you know that doesn't usually happen so if you can find something now you're going to still have a lot of people that you can help with it eventually though the hope is that we do have as you say an effective vaccine that could make the disease go away like measles like smallpox like polio that's the real long-term solution but we don't know how long the long-term is Yeah.
2: Well, people want to read more about uh, treatment development, vaccine development, uh, the In the Pipeline blog. It's at uh, sciencemag.org. Derek, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate thank it. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it.
2: All the best to you. Uh, that's uh, Derek Lowe, medical chemist, uh, drug discovery researcher. Uh, he covers uh, drug development, vaccine developments. If you want to read about you know, some of the evidence uh, around various potential therapies, where things are out with the vaccine in the pipeline, you can find it at sciencemeg.org. There's also an interesting overview today at StatNews.com, uh, looking at the various uh, proposed treatments and where things are at with vaccines. There are currently two drugs that are in phase three. Uh, one of them is Remdesivir. Uh, another drug uh, from the company Roivant, which is very specific at looking at uh, whether its drug can treat acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is one of the more severe ways in which this uh, COVID-19 manifests itself. I want to turn our attention to the question uh, right now of, of kids uh, and COVID-19 and uh, the importance of understanding, you know, the impact and the relationship there. Uh, that certainly in the good news is it appears as though kids are not uh, hard hit by this this virus. But why is that? Uh, There's also the question too, specific to Alberta, is why do we seem to have more cases amongst those under 18 than other jurisdictions? I think it's about 13% of our total cases here compared to on average around uh, 5% in other jurisdictions. Maybe that's a byproduct of testing, our approach to testing, younger population, or maybe it's something else. There's also the important question too that the researchers are trying to understand, and there's a, a case now in Alberta that's being investigated This uh, inflammatory condition, uh, very similar to what's known as Kawasaki disease, and what the possible link to COVID-19 might be, because that's certainly one area of concern when it comes to, to children. Uh, so given the importance of understanding all of this, uh, researchers at the University of Calgary have launched uh, what's known as a 360-degree study of children and COVID-19 to kind of take a, a broader look at, at all of these uh, very important questions. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. James Kellner, uh, professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary, uh, Cummings School of Medicine, also professor of microbiology, immunology, and infectious diseases, Dr. Kellner, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks Rob, good afternoon, I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am, I appreciate that and hopefully you are as well. Uh, Let me ask you first of all about this, um, you know, inflammatory syndrome or this condition that we're seeing uh, similar to what's known as Kawasaki disease. What do we know at this point about a possible link to COVID-19? So we know a little bit, but not a lot right now. Um, Kawasaki syndrome, which most people probably
0: never heard of before the last few weeks, um is a relatively rare condition that uh, we see at the children's Hospital in Calgary uh, somewhere around thirty times a year or sometimes some years more, some years less. so it's mm. it's uncommon, but it's not rare at um at a children's hospital, and we know that um, while we don't know the exact cause of it, we've known about this disease for decades and we have good treatment for it, we do know that there's a large number of infections, viruses as well as some bacteria uh, that have been associated with triggering this infection. And Kawasaki seems to be a disease where it's, the infection triggers the disease, Kawasaki, but it's, it's, a, it's a delayed reaction, what we call a post-infectious phenomenon because of the way that the virus Triggers the immune system to um, to harm the person who has it, and so COVID 19 seems to be the latest um, uh, um, virus which has been associated with uh, triggering Kawasaki with some unique characteristics in it, and uh, there have been um, uh, numerous cases that have been reported uh, in Europe, especially in the UK, and. Uh, In Italy, as well as in uh, New York City, and now across Canada, we're seeing some cases um, that are being reported. I I, I just want to say um, that in, in many cases, the link to COVID is a suspicion at this time, and there's not that many
2: cases where the link has been proven. Okay. And how, how does this manifest itself? Or what's the potential risk yeah. to kids of this?
0: So the, the, the risk with it, they, so there's sort of two flavors of it. The, the usual flavor of, of Kawasaki, which it's a, it's, it's a bit of an odd disease in a way because it presents with fever. Children have fever for several days, which they often get. They get a rash. Um, they get um, some uh, swelling and redness of the hands and feet. They get quite swollen. Um, they get a, a rash around their mouth, and their tongue may change uh, characteristics. They may get red eyes. And then he gets the swollen glands. There's sort of a characteristic constellation of symptoms. That in itself is uh, can be alarming, but is is not such a big deal. The big deal with Kawasaki is that, untreated, um, uh, a percentage about 15% of kids with Kawasaki would end up potentially having harm to their coronary arteries from inflammation. So we have treatment to prevent that, and so our our goal always is to. um, uh, is to diagnose it as early as possible, give the treatment uh, that does an amazing job of, of preventing that those heart vessel problems, which won't be apparent when they first present. In a very small percentage, about 1 in 100 cases of Kawasaki, children are much sicker when they come to hospital. They actually they actually present in, in a form of shock and they end up having, uh, they're very sick and end up going to the intensive care unit and that, that can be a, a life-threatening disease when that happens.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about this study, uh, which is going to, you know, explore a lot of different questions uh, around children and COVID nineteen. You know, three uh, three hundred sixty degree uh, study, as they call it. So, tell us a bit more about this. Sure, and I'll try to just briefly uh, describe the three main uh, goals. Our,
0: our first goal is to just get a sense of. Um, how the impact has been on the general population of kids who have been tested for or diagnosed with COVID. You said at the outset that um, Alberta has a lot more um, children who have been diagnosed, over 900 in Alberta. And as you said, about 13% of the cases here are in children. And so that's a lot. And I really do think it's, as you also said, that it's probably related to our very uh, vigorous and rigorous testing and contact tracing. We're doing that much more extensively than any other jurisdiction in in Canada and almost any other jurisdiction in the world. And I think that we're uncovering more diseases that might be uncovered otherwise. The good mm-hmm. news is most of those cases are very mild. Despite those nine hundred over nine hundred cases, only eight children have actually been admitted to hospital so far. But there's, you know, the impact of that. So we want to study that. Of mm-hmm. uh, the children who are sicker. Uh, the second big goal of the children who are sicker is to do uh, a, a real deep dive of their biology, to look at their immunologic response, to look at their physiologic response, to look at their genetic response, and that's the second goal. And then the third and, and a sort of longer-term goal is going to be to to look at a group of children who have been diagnosed with COVID, uh, and we have a lot available in Alberta to approach and ask to participate, as well as um, some children who are tested and negative, as as well as some healthy controls and see what their immune response is and see how long lasting it is. Cause there's virtually no information about that in children. And that's uh, something that we really have a great opportunity to study here in Alberta.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, seems like, I think partly because there haven't been as many cases and partly because, you know, kids seem to fare well that there's been less focus maybe on, on some of these questions or it's, it's harder to get answers to some of these questions. So you know, despite all we've learned about these, this disease, that, that there is still a lot when it concerns kids that we, we really don't know, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and it's a completely fair point, and, and we have to be realistic for sure that, and I completely understand I mean, where, the, where the action is for severe diseases in older adults, and, um, and, and um, for sure, but what can we learn from studying children? Well, we can learn more about whether children have an important role in the um, transmission of disease, which it seems there's evolving information to suggest that children aren't big drivers of transmission, but they still have a role in transmission because children are out and about and their behavior is to interact with other children and adults so much. Even if they have a smaller role in transmission, the total amount of of activity that children do can have a big role. So we need to understand that better. And then as well, if we can understand better about the biology of why children are less effect, less affected, that could well help us understand um, how we might go about trying to support adults. If um, uh, there are things that, um, about the way that children are biologically that are potentially modifiable or, or something that they could be therapy for in adults, that would be a helpful thing. That's a medium-term thing. It's not likely that we're going to find something instantaneously, but it is something that's well worth understanding.
2: Yeah, and obviously this kind of research takes some time. I, I think some of this, though, is, is relevant in helping shape our, our you know, decisions around schools reopening and yes. kids getting back to other activities. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, we, we want to know as much as we can in making those decisions.
0: Yes, and I think to be able to get a snapshot of how children have fared, even the ones who haven't been admitted to hospital, because we know they haven't been admitted to hospital, but we don't really know much yet about, you know, how much health system utilization they've had and whether whether they've had to go on medications and things like this. We don't know that, so that would be helpful to get a snapshot of that that we can hope to do fairly quickly. And then a piece of the immunity, I mean, that's going to be going forward in the months to come, there's going to be we're, we'll see a whole slew of information coming out on levels of immunity, antibodies in the blood against COVID. And we don't have, you know what the meaning of those are, what are the good antibodies to have and how much the good antibodies do you need. Um, but seeing how children are with, related to this compared to adults is very important for us to be able to get kids back to school and back to some semblance of, uh, of what activities look like before before the time of COVID. Um, so that we're actually hoping for some initial data in, in a very short period that will help with those
2: decisions that are you know, facing us right now. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Kellner, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. All the best. Uh, Dr. James Kellner, head of the Department of Pediatrics, uh, University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine, also Professor of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Disease and Community Health Sciences. So he'll be leading this study. Uh, one of the leaders of this, I think about 29 researchers across the province are going to be involved in this. So some some big questions, some really intriguing ones. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
0: Afternoons
1: with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.